Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Faith Focus Weekly Discipleship Podcast. My name is Kevin Rognes, and I'm the Discipleship Director here at Faith Covenant Church. And I just want to take a moment to thank you for watching or listening, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on any of the podcasting platforms. I'm just very grateful that you would take the time to do this. I hope you also take the time to hit the subscribe button to make sure that you're never missing any of our weekly content. At the moment, we're still in an episode about the spiritual disciplines, and so we're using a book called Spiritual Disciplines Companion by Jan Johnson, and that's been really helpful for me to just think through spiritual disciplines in a different way. And spiritual disciplines are essentially anything that helps us to connect with God. And I love that she says connect with God instead of to God, because it's a relational connection, not just like connecting, um, plugging something into a wall for electricity. So I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about spiritual disciplines. I also want to remind us that what we talk about in this series is not the end-all be-all of spiritual disciplines. There are lots of different ways to connect with God. These are just some helpful categories that can help us explore different ways of how we do that and explore new ways of engaging with God if we're needing to do something new. So with that, today we're going to move into a portion of uh, spiritual disciplines called uh, simplicity and fasting. Now, you may recall that recently we did some episodes on fasting during our Lent series. So um, this will kind of supplement what we talked about in that, um, but you can also look for more detail about fasting in those episodes. So today, again, we're going to look at simplicity and fasting. And so the way that uh, Jan Johnson phrases some of that is as follows. Simplicity and fasting are both disciplines of abstinence. In simplicity, we abstain from participating in activities and owning possessions that are extraneous and do not further the purposes God has given us. To fast means we don't get to eat what we want or don't get to engage in some activity that we prefer, like watching television or listening to music. Both disciplines train us in self-denial, which is a key mark of a Christian. They help us to empty ourselves so we become hungry for the things that really matter. We find a new focus on God, and as we die to self, we are free to reorient ourselves to a life fully lived in God. But death to self is difficult. Both simplicity and fasting train us to relinquish what we want. But when done as God leads, they do not need to make us miserable. Indeed, simplicity is richness and fasting is feasting in the truest sense. They both teach us to truly enjoy each blessing of creation as it comes, enjoying one simple, luscious grape at a time, being grateful for a car that runs well and gets us from one place to the next. So that's just a really helpful way of starting to understand what simplicity and fasting actually looks like. And so to help us get deeper into the simplicity aspect of things first, Jan Johnson talks about the single-hearted person. Now, this is not to refer to people who are single in terms of relationships or married, um, but just the single-hearted person, a person who's very focused on 
God and on God's ways. And so Jan Johnson writes this about that. She says, as we practice simplicity, the Holy Spirit trains us to cut busyness and hurry out of our lives by remaining focused on God and God's kingdom. We refrain from participating in activities and owning possessions that are superfluous and do not further our union with God. The result is singleness of heart, so that we are deliberately and purposeful in everything we do and say and think. But simplicity may look person for each person, different for each person and for each culture. For many of us, it means not caring about owning the kinds of things that a self-respecting thief would break in and steal. But it also means not being holier than thou about what we own or don't do. In and of themselves, simplicity choices mean nothing. We discard certain objects and activities because they take us away from what God created us to do, to have union with God, to hear what God is calling us to do in the kingdom, and to take the next step in doing that. What I really appreciate about this is that Jan Johnson kind of articulates that this looks different for different people at different times. So things that distract attention away from me, um, or things that distract me from God may be different than things that distract other people from God. So for me, running is a time where I can connect with God. For other people, that would be a distraction from time on God. So it looks different for every person, and I think that's up to you and God to discern, okay, what activities are superfluous and what are giving me life? There are times when God gives us activities that we can really enjoy and that are restful for us, and that's gonna look different from person to person as well. So what's restful to you may not be restful to me, and it's maybe something I can regard in order to keep my life simple and focused on God. The biblical example that Jan Johnson cites for this kind of idea is found in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24, and I'm going to read that here. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So, if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This passage is just reminding us that our lives in Christ are eternal, and we're not taking the material possessions or the money with us into eternity. That's not where our treasures are. Our treasures are in God. And uh, I also really appreciate that. Um, I, I just love what it says about you can't serve two different masters. Two things can't control your life. Either God controls your life 
or you allow other things to control your life, uh, your work schedule, kids' school schedule, um, anything like that can control our lives if we don't put God at the center. Now, the next portion that Jan talks about is saying less is more. And in doing that, she comes to the example in Matthew 6 that immediately follows the passage we just read. So I'm going to look now at Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can you or any other add one moment to his life by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do so much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, what I love this about this passage is that it's that reminder that God cares about us so much. We see God providing for things in nature, whether it's the birds in the sky or the grass or the flowers. God is providing for all those things. And yet God loves us so much more. So God is going to provide us with what we absolutely need. Now, sometimes we define our needs and our wants in ways that blur the two together. And so we sometimes struggle with the idea of, oh, I need this thing, when really you don't. You could do without that to simplify your life. This is something I certainly struggle with, and I'm sure all of us do. What do I really need, and what can I give up? So Jan Johnson gives us a little bit of commentary on this passage and says this, The adage, less is more, is about simplicity. Often, the less is said, the better. The less is spent, the better. The less fuss on clothes, the better. Simplicity is an expression of frugality, which means we refrain from spending or using resources to add to our status, glamour, or sense of luxury. Simplicity's opposite is indulgence. Perhaps you've caught yourself grabbing for more at a sale, or a buffet, or at a network meeting. The frenzy to save money, eat scrumptious food, or make influential contacts takes over. We gotta do, we gotta be, we gotta have, until we're exhausted. Disciplines of simplicity train us away from those cravings and teach us to trust in God, to let our character speak for itself. Yet God may speak to each of us differently about what the disciplines of simplicity we need. Different values pull at us, 
and thus we begin in different places. And I really appreciate that she says that again. It's different for each of us. Simplicity means a different thing for each of us. For me, I enjoy the simplicity of not having children in my life. The reality for many of you is that you do have children, and so you do have a more complicated schedule in life because you have activities that you need to bring your children to. So what you practice in simplicity will be different than what I practice in simplicity. So I think that's really important for us to keep in mind. Jen Johnson continues her discussion about simplicity in talking about simple talk. And she looks at Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37 to do that. So I'm going to read that real quick here. Matthew 5, 33 through 37 says, Again, you have heard that it, is, it was said to our ancestors, You must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single uh, hair white or black. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more from this is from the evil one. And that's a really interesting passage of scripture, because it's telling us to just say yes or no, and to be true to our word. When we say yes to something, we should treat that as a promise. And we, when we say no to something, that's us establishing a boundary that we're not going to cross. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. Jan Johnson continues that conversation by saying, Talking too much is often about pressuring people. With elaborate facial expressions and hand gestures, we make sure coworkers or children know that we mean what we say. Dallas Willard puts it like this. When we're with those we feel less than secure with, we use words to adjust our appearance or, and elicit their approval. Otherwise, we fear our virtues might not receive adequate appreciation and our shortcomings will, might not be properly understood. In not speaking, we resign, to appear to, we resign how we appear to God, and that is hard. So Jan Johnson finishes by saying, simplicity of language teaches us to be who we are and leave it at that. And what I really appreciate about the Dallas Willard quote that she cited was, in not speaking, we resign how we appear to God. We just let um, other people perceive us as they will. Other people's perceptions of us don't necessarily matter. That's between them and God. We just let, uh, leave that in God's hands and surrender that. So we don't have to say as much. We can say a whole lot less and do more in love. Then Jan Johnson goes on to talk about feasting. And I'm not going to um, say as much of this because, like I said earlier, uh, we had some recent podcast episodes during our Lent season about feasting. So um, she does mention that um, there's a point where feasting becomes, or excuse me, when fasting becomes feasting. And she looks at John 6, 48 through 51 to kind of talk about that and says, it's where Jesus is talking and Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. 
But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So Jan Johnson comments on that by saying, while feasting on Christ may intrigue you, intrigue you fasting mm, may put you off. But you don't have to be Olympic skilled. You might begin with fasting from people, which is solitude, which was an earlier practice that we talked about. Conversation, which is silence, another thing we talked about. Spending, which ties into frugality, which is about that simplicity that we've just talked about media or using the telephone. Perhaps you'd like to experiment with, from, uh, with abstaining from overpackaged, highly processed foods, from a lack of exercise or fitness mania, or from living in, with an overpacked schedule. Or you may attempt a partial fast of eating no rich food, meat, or wine. Do such ideas seem like cheating to you, as if you wouldn't be really fasting? The purpose of spiritual disciplines is not to get scores on a spiritual SAT test or to get you yourself suggested for sainthood. They're simple ways to connect with God, to feast on the one who loves you. And I so appreciate that idea of even though fasting can seem like we're taking something away, it's really feasting because it opens up space for us to feast on God and who God is and God's character. I think that's just really, really powerful and helpful imagery. She then also talks about how hearts are laid bare. And the biblical example she gives is from 1 Samuel 7 verses 3 through 13. I'm not going to read those, but to summarize, Samuel, the prophet, is leading the people of Israel and he leads them into a time of fasting. That fasting then leads them into a time of intensive repentance and realizing, oh, now that I'm fasting and putting this focus on God, I'm recognizing the ways that I have not been faithful or true to God. That's a really important thing for us to recognize. And Jan Johnson puts it this way, while fasting teaches us to feast on God, it may also take us to the edge. Just as our worst side is revealed when we're hungry, lonely, and tired, as on a long, hot, dusty backpacking trip, fasting reveals the things that control us, the parts of ourselves we'd hoped would go away. Our fears and faults stare us in the face. That's why fasting often leads to repentance and confession of sin. Without our usual comforts like food, television, shopping, we turn to God with more honesty and intensity. There, we connect with the richness of God, who truly meets our needs. As a result, we experience new levels of humility, simplicity, and peace. When practicing fasting regularly or other disciplines of abstinence, we find that we don't feel so thwarted when we don't get what we want get what we want in the everyday events of life. We have more patience. We repent and confess more easily. Our character grows and we become the kind of people God can easily use as a servant in the kingdom. 
And I really, really just appreciate this because the idea of repentance and coming to a place of confession is not about degrading ourselves and thinking less of ourselves. It's simply about using fasting as a way to connect with God. As we get closer to God, we realize the things that we need to confess. We want to bring those things to God so that we can be more like God. The only way we're going to do that is if we confess our shortcomings. If we don't acknowledge what we're doing wrong, then we're going to keep going on paths that are not where God wants us to be walking. So, fasting is a way, and simplicity is a way of opening our hearts to God so that we can say, what do I need to confess? What do I need to repent of and be rid of in my life? The last piece that Jan Johnson goes into is the motivations behind a fast. And she looks briefly at Matthew 6. We're not going to look at that, as well as Isaiah 58. We're not going to read that either. But both of those passages talk about the motivations behind fasting. In Matthew 6, Jesus is mentioning that some of the Pharisees are fasting as kind of a ostentatious show of like how good they are. And uh, Jesus counters that and says, no, fasting has to be for a pure motive. The way uh, Jan Johnson describes that is, she says, motives in fasting are so crucial that the first mention of fasting in the New Testament is a warning about motivation. It's easy to fast for wrong reasons. Fasting can become a spiritual trophy an instant ticket to supposed spiritual superiority as others look up to us. Even if we keep our fasting a secret, it can become a source of self-congratulations as we compete with ourselves to improve our fasting record. So what is the proper motive for fasting? Well, according to Richard Foster, the only reason to fast is an urging or call to it, a prompting a sense of rightness. We hear that call of God because we have been connecting with God and we long to connect even more. So again, it's important for us to look to our motives when we are fasting so that we can do it only so that we want to get closer to God. We're not doing it to show off to others. We're not doing it to get something from God other than just being close to God. That should be the only reason that we ever fast. And if that's not where you're at quite yet, then maybe now is not the right time to be fasting for you. That's okay. It's important that we have the right motivations for that. So that's the discussion that Jan Johnson has for us about simplicity and fasting. And I just want to bring up one other resource for this as well. This is a really excellent book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. This is a really interesting book that was really impactful for me when I read it a couple years ago, and I'm really excited to read it again. And actually, today, the day this episode airs, we're having a discussion about this book at Faith Covenant at 6.30 p.m. So um, if you're watching that today, I just or, uh, the day this comes out, I hope that you're um, ready for this book and ready to discuss it. If not, this is just always a really great resource about simplifying our lives and um, just kind of ignoring the busyness of the hectic world that we live in. So there's always something going on 
And this book just really helps us to re-examine that and say, am I doing too much? Could I do a little bit less so that I could have more of God? So that's my hope for you today, that um, this discussion would help you focus on what can I simplify in my life? What can I abstain from in order to create more space for God to enter into our lives? If you have any comments, questions, concerns, or stories that you want to share, please let me know. My email address is listed in the description of the episode down below. So thank you so much for watching or listening, and I hope you have a wonderful and blessed day.